Classical Cambridge on Cambridge 105 Radio. Joining me now is a gentleman I've listened to on the radio and uh, met for the first time last year during the Easter week at King's College here in Cambridge, and that's Donald MacLeod, who is regularly these days the presenter, amongst other things, of Composer of the Week on Radio 3. Um, How did that come about? I had the opportunity to leave the staff at the BBC. I was on the staff for about 20 years and then there was one of those occasional reshuffles when they wanted to reduce the number of editors and I had set up through the night at that point and the chance came to take redundancy and come back after a decent interval doing all the bits I liked, the broadcasting, without any of the meetings and the admin and hassle. And so I started doing a a program called Sound Stories. Mm -hmm. I did a third of that, along with Peggy Reynolds and Richard Baker. And then after about two years, Roger Wright, who was then controller, decided that he wanted to reshuffle things and Sound Stories was going to get the chop. So I got summoned to his office thinking, well, you know, this is it. I've had two years of freelance work and it's going to come to an end and absolutely out of the blue he asked me if I'd like to do Composer of the Week and I was completely dumbfounded no one person had ever done it before and I really didn't think I was capable of it and so I asked if maybe I could do part of it share it with someone else and uh, Roger rather sternly said if you don't want to do it, we may be able to find something else. And so I saw that I just had to do it. And I would say for the first year at least, I was completely terrified. I was absolutely certain that people would rumble me. They would see that it was all just a kind of fakery and bluffing and that I didn't really know anything. But somehow I got away with it and unbelievably... This coming September will be my 20th anniversary of doing it. Gosh. And, of course, before, back in my days in Radio 3, it was this week's composer, so they sort of turned the title around. Yes. And that's about the only change there's been. Well, not altogether. I mean, it started in 1943, amazingly, during the war. Someone decided that what people needed early in the morning, it was at half past seven, was half an hour of improving classical music. And then when the stations became sorted out from home service and light programme and so on into the configuration we now have of radios, one, two, three, four, it fell to Radio 3. And it's, apart from Coral Evensong, longest-running programme there is. So you'll go on forever? No, definitely (laughs) not. Apart from Niels, I think someone else should have the huge privilege of doing what's probably about the best job in radio. I know several people say that, but I I really think I've been incredibly lucky. And it's um, five hours a week, generally speaking, isn't it? Yes. And you write the script, do you, from notes and things? Yes. It's quite a production machine. Radio 3 very generously commissions 40 new weeks every year. So I can't, uh, I'm sure you have find the same thing. People don't really think about how radio programmes are made. Why should they? They switch on the radio and the stuff comes out. So people tend to assume that I do the whole thing myself, all the research and the planning and so on. I mean, that's just not possible. So I have a fantastic team of producers, a very small team, based in 
Cardiff. That's a kind of historical accident. Mm. And they build the music plots, which obviously takes a lot of time. And if you're dealing with a composer like Bach or Beethoven or Mozart, there's an awful lot of listening to decide quite what the, the music plot's going to be, given that we revisit each of those every year. And they have to get the timings right. So they have to end up with a jigsaw, which is roughly 50 minutes of music and 10 minutes of empty space for me to fill. <laughs> so quite fun. Your other love, and of course, when you're not doing those 40 weeks, you, you tend to trip up to Edinburgh, don't you? And the opera houses. Yes. Well, I mean, Edinburgh is, is the sort of classic busman's holiday. And it's very good for me because, you know, the Composer of the Week is pre-recorded. So I'm I'm doing live concerts every day in Edinburgh with, I have to say, just the most fantastic team. I'm enormously fond of them, actually. They, they make me feel very valued there. Not that my own production uh, team don't, but what I do the rest of the time is very solitary. I sit in front of a computer and I bash the stuff out day after day, whereas in Edinburgh I am genuinely working with a team of people who are making the thing happen then and there, and that's a, a really nice feeling. And I'm in the hall and... I'm a bit like a kind of antique. The people come up and pat me on the head uh, to check that I'm still there. But, I mean, the audience can see me and and they uh, now regard me as a kind of fixture in the Queen's Hall. And, it, and so that's very nice, just to, to get to know people who listen to the programme. And, and um, they very often come and say incredibly nice things. And, of course, you understand the production process, because I think you were, before you were an announcer of Radio 3, then presentation editor, you were actually a studio manager. That's right. I was very lucky. I joined the BBC 42 years ago this year. And when I was applying, as finals were coming up, there were four different schemes that I felt I had some chance of getting in on. I mean, they don't exist anymore. I don't know how people... People often ask me, how could they get started? I, I really have no idea. It's so much tougher just getting in the door. Needless to say, the, there were three jobs I really wanted... <laughs> Sorry, studio management. Um, but I just, I thought the studio management thing looked a bit kind of techy and knobs and switches and not really me. It turned out not to be really like that. It, it was a basic training in how radio works. And so many people came in via that door, people like Esther Ranson and Jenny Abramsky and, and so on. I mean, they, so they were looking as they recruited people like me for people who could go on to become producers. I have to say, I have no idea what they saw in me. I thought I did a diabolically bad interview, but then I've never felt that I did a good interview in my mm. life. But somehow or other, I was really astounded. I mean, I, I came out thinking, well, that's it. <laughs> you know, I shot myself in the foot several times, so I'll never hear from them again. So I was amazed. And also I had a slight hearing deficit, which they just kind of generously overlooked. When I went for the first hearing test, I had to go through, I was at St. Andrews, and I went through to Broadcasting House in Glasgow to have, at, at that stage, each BBC headquarters would have a matron on duty. Mm -hmm. And matron sat me down and gave me a, a hearing test, and she could tell that I was struggling with this and not doing very well with my right ear. And so, I mean, this rather dates when it happened. She went along the corridor to the typing pool... <laughs> because there was one, and asked them all to stop typing for oh. five minutes so that I could hear. I mean, that was just incredibly kind. And I think she probably fiddled the results. Anyway, I, I managed to get in. I remember when I was around about 15, I'm a little bit older than you, and um, one of the requirements of a studio manager was a degree of manual dexterity. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess I had that. I mean, there was a phase in the time that I'm talking about when I took redundancy. I think I had kind of a year to work out the notice on that. And I had started to make bits of furniture, rather fantastic pieces, um, architecturally inspired. And I thought maybe, you know, if the broadcasting thing didn't work out, maybe I should have a second string to my bow. So I um, did a course at the London College of Furniture in cabinet making. And I only had one day a week to do it. And I just, I didn't, there was no time to practice in between. So I never really made any progress. I learned a lot, but realized that I would never make a go of it. Um, So uh, it's fortunately for me, the broadcasting thing did seem to work out. Excellent. Well, let's, um, I mentioned opera earlier on. We'll talk about that in a moment. Is there any one operatic composer or any particular opera that is sort of top of your list? Well, I'm going to be, this isn't Desert Island, this, and I don't have to stick to just, you know, choose one ultimately. I guess two of my favourite composers are Monteverdi, so I love all the Monteverdi operas. But it took me a while. In fact, it was Radio 3 is responsible for the fact that I now love Wagner. When I joined Radio 3, I knew the big orchestral chunks, but I found it a kind of cliff face. I couldn't get any purchase on it, and it all seemed to be... I had the cliched notion that it was all fat ladies in horned helmets. And the first opera that I was allocated to do was Tristan and Isolde, and I thought, oh, of all the operas in the world, why did they ask me to do this? This is going to be horrible. And of course, I then had to get to know the piece, to study it really well, and the gates opened, and much as I think the man behind the music was an utterly appalling human being. The Ring Cycle is one of the great artworks of all time. And the end of the second opera in cycle, Valkyra, Wotan's Farewell, is for me just one of the most magnificent pieces of music ever. The most moving performance of it I ever heard was, it must now be two years ago, at the Edinburgh Festival. They gave a concert performance with an extraordinary cast. I mean, there were some very big guns in there, notably Bryn Tervel singing Wotan. And it's the most emotional performance of the opera I've ever been at in my life. And everyone in the hall felt it. The man next to me started sobbing partway through Act One. <laughs> and uh, when we got to the, the end of the first act, there was a standing ovation. That does not happen in Edinburgh. They do not get to their feet. But it was everyone recognised that they were in the presence of something really exceptional. And when it came to the end, I mean, the applause was, and I was in tears by then, I have to admit, was absolutely extraordinary. Everyone came out of the building knowing that they had heard something right up there. And it was only afterwards that I discovered, because I know Karen Cargill, who was singing in it for the first time, singing uh, Erda, that Brent Tevel had told her that that was the last time he was going to sing the role in that opera. So I'm glad I didn't know that before. <laughs> Thank you. 
With me is Donald MacLeod, um, who has been here at Easter at King's in Cambridge for quite a few years. Uh, that came about in quite a strange way. Yes, it did. I had done Franck Martin as composer of the week a few years before, five or six years before, I think. And Martin was one of those composers, there's a surprisingly large number of them, who married a woman much younger than himself. I mean, she was... 20 years younger than him, I think. So she was still alive and very much kicking. She's a very feisty and very sharp and acute lady. And I think she was slightly disappointed that I was interviewing her rather than my producer, to whom she'd taken something of a shine. (laughs) And um, she was very delightful and informative. And King's decided in that year, I can't remember now when this was, maybe seven or eight years ago, that they were going to perform Martin's Golgotha, a piece that's very rarely done. And they discovered that Madame Martin was still alive and invited her to come over, and she was delighted to do that. And they had a request from her that I should be invited as her guest. And so I was plainly really thrilled and honoured to be there. And Sarah Chambray, who was then running the music events at King's, introduced herself to me. And I think she recognized that I might be useful uh, <laughs> in some way. And she was incredibly energetic in, the, in the, the events that she arranged around the concert. So there would be complementary events of various kinds, shedding light on the, on the music to be performed in different ways. And I got involved in kind of hosting those, in being parts of panels and, and so on. And then when those things stopped, I got drawn into the circle of Stephen Cherry, who's the dean at King's, and who over the past few years has put together, I suppose you could call them sacred entertainments, so words and music appropriate to Holy Week. The first of them was about the writings of Julian of Norwich, and the second was about a remarkable young Dutch woman who might have been another Anne Frank, but decided to take the very brave course of not going into hiding and ended up perishing along with so many in Auschwitz. And then this year, he took us on an exploration of the writings of Thomas Traherne, who I have to say was just a name for me, but turned out to be a very remarkable chap indeed. So it's been a huge honour to perform in that space where so many 
amazing voices have performed over the last century and indeed for centuries before. It's a really extraordinary experience. When we were performing, there was some discussion about exactly where the three readers should stand. And I had just sort of instinctively gone for a, a spot. We were performing up at the sanctuary in front of the high altar. And I realized that there is something incredibly potent about standing on the axis of that extraordinary building because you can then see right through the choir screen to the great west doors and um, it's pretty awesome really. Of course there are two Stevens at the moment and have been for quite a few years. Mm. Stephen Cleavery you've worked with I know because you've announced concerts for Radio 3 from there and he will be going in a month or two's time. It's going to be quite a change. There really sometimes are events which mark epochs in in musical history and this is one of them this is a man who's been in charge of the music there for more than three decades and has been instrumental in preserving i guess the very distinctive vocal tradition of kings and putting his own stamp on it in a way i mean this is a man so devoid of ego (laughs) I'm not suggesting that he set out to give it a personal sound, but inevitably his personality and his musical thinking have influenced the way that the choir's sound has developed. And it's he's going to be enormously missed. But, you know, these things have to come to an end. People can't go on forever. What has been very difficult is that this last year has been enormously difficult for him. What should have been a kind of lap of honour has been in terms of accident and illness, a real horror story. But he's come through it all. He's a man of tremendous tenacity and faith, I think, really. And it was fantastic to see him, the only person in the chapel who'd done that, still standing and looking wonderfully vigorous at the end of the Matthew Passion. He conducted two consecutive performances. And it's another of those occasions when those who were present won't forget what they heard. You also come up here to do a relatively new series at uh, Stableford Granary, don't you? Yes, that's a, a really remarkable enterprise altogether. Visionary, I suppose you'd have to call it. The travel company was started by a man who started up a series of cultural tours. These are very high-end things when you get really big guns leading around. So they have Wagner tours led by John Dethridge, for example, Mr. Wagner himself. Mm. I mean, they're really fantastic uh, occasions when uh, people are granted terrific access, taken to the opera or around, you know, classical ruins in the Mediterranean or whatever it may be. And as Part of the vision, the profits made by the company have been ploughed into developing the site around their offices. And so, as well as building a series of artist studios on one wing and conference facilities and so on another, they built a beautiful little concert hall, a really fantastic and, and flexible performance space. And it's been my huge privilege to introduce a couple of concerts there of, of new music, music written by people who are still alive and, and kicking. And uh, it's really thrilling that, that a new space has opened relatively near Cambridge. I haven't driven to it from here, but I mm. suppose it's maybe 15 minutes' drive. That's right, there. yes. We did a... Uh, my roundabout programme came from there one time uh, last winter, I think it was. And, uh, yes, it is. And they've got a wonderful piano, haven't they, there? Yeah. 
the whole setup has just been so beautifully designed. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful glass walled corridor one side down one side of it, which is just a, a pleasure to to walk in. The spaces are are really delightful. I mean, they preserved. It was, I think, a part of a pig farm. And so there are kind of relics of, of the piggery here and there, you know, bits of rustic architecture, but also really interesting use of wood and so on. I think it's from every point of view. I mean, it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful and is a conveniently sized space for small ensembles to perform. Well, wonderful. Donald McLeod, thank you very much for coming into Cambridge 105 Radio and the best of luck for the future. Thank you very much.